the idea of lasting peace or the unconditioned is meaningless since temporary pleasure is all I've ever known. How can I really put my effort towards something that has no frame of reference and appears delusional? As long as one tries always not to harm others and is willing to deal with the pain that arises when one grasps onto these fleeting temporary pleasures, what is the harm with having as much fun as humanly possible? <laughs> there, there are a few related questions. <laughs> you mentioned the three types of renunciation. Letting go of unskillful tendencies, conserving energy or sense restraint, and not to identify with the physical mental phenomena. Regarding the first kind, the ability to say no, say I decide to have a cup of tea. This is not really harmful to myself or others, but there's still a subtle form of kalesa involved. If I only wanted to quench my thirst, I might as well drink water. It was also said the more we practice something, the more we strengthen that tendency. So the more I can say no, the closer I come to liberation. I find myself often struggling and doubting when to say no or yes, go ahead, when I can allow myself and what I should deny. Where does one draw the line? This is the last in the series. Sex and chocolate. <laughs> could, could you please comment on sensual desire? Is there any hope? <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what the hope was about. <laughs> For or against. <laughs> how do we transplant how does we transplant the virtue we've developed here into our daily life? So <laughs> What's the relationship between you know, a vision of the possibility of some kind of unconditioned freedom, which we may only have some vague idea about, and the more present reality of actually enjoying ourselves? Where is happiness in that spectrum? You know, and where is the line? of when we actually exercise some restraint, when we go ahead and enjoy the different kinds of pleasures. There are a few different levels one could plug into in these questions. One level, which I think we do have some experience about, even if it's even if it's just a beginning experience, is that actually what gives us pleasure, what gives us happiness, changes as we develop our minds. And so it's true that for most people and during most of our lives, the places that we found happiness have been in the enjoyment of sense pleasures. And the Buddha recognized this. He talked about the enjoyment of the pleasures, and he talked about 
the conditions which make possible the enjoyment of these sense pleasures. We also know through our practice and through our life experience the limitation of the enjoyment of these pleasures. You know, that they're nice and they're fun for a while, but that they are not ultimately satisfying. And so that understanding really has brought us all here. You know, each, each one of us has some, some understanding of that, that there's a limitation to the fun we have in the enjoyment or delight of senses, of the senses. You know, possibly in the weeks of practice, you have gotten a taste of a mind that is actually calm or peaceful or concentrated. When that is developed, when we really develop that parami, that strength of mind, of concentration and calm, the actual enjoyment of it is much finer. It's much more fun than the chocolate ice cream soda. And this is coming from a great lover of chocolate. (laughs) I appreciate that pleasure a lot. It doesn't hold a candle to samadhi. (laughs) You know, the actual happiness that we have when our mind is quiet, when our mind is peaceful, is just much greater. And there are kinds of happiness which are greater than the happiness of samadhi, than the happiness of concentration, which is the real happiness of insight, of seeing clearly how things are happening. When there's that sense, which also comes to us at different times in the practice, of really dropping in. You know, that sense of when the mind is not struggling to stay attentive, when it's not struggling to stay mindful, But even, you know, at first, even if it's just for short periods of time, and it's like, the mind drops into being present. And we're really seeing just this flow of phenomena arising and passing. There's a sense of fulfillment or completion in that, a sense of wholeness that is much, much more satisfying, that actually gives us more pleasure, more happiness. And so in understanding this question of happiness in our lives, it's not to say that we necessarily should renounce all sense pleasures because we're living in a world of sense objects. that That is the human realm. It's a question of where we place where we place the value in our lives. What do we keep going after? Of course, the choice is open. One of the things I I appreciate so much about the Buddha's teachings is he laid out this map of, of the universe, of reality. He said, if you want the pleasures of the senses, practice generosity, practice morality. That's the conditions for sense happiness coming. If you want the happiness of samadhi, if you want the happiness of concentration, practice meditation, practice one-pointedness. 
if you want the happiness of insight, of wisdom, you need to practice mindfulness, vipassana. And so the choice is laid out, and we just have to be aware of the possibilities. What's in one way sad, you know, when we look about in the world, is that very few people know of the range of possibilities of happiness. Seems a lot of people are very connected with the range of possibilities of suffering. And although we talk a lot about that, you know, in the teachings of the Buddha, the truth of suffering, actually what the teachings are about are about happiness. They're about how to be happy and all the many ways we can be happy. That's one level of this question. Another level, which in some way goes to something more profound, has to do with how the force of desire in the mind, how this force of wanting or desiring of sense pleasures Keeps, keeps us bound to this wheel of rebirth. It's ignorance and craving, which is the driving forces, which are the driving forces of samsara, of this whole huge round of rebirth. And so on a more profound level, when we keep reinforcing the wanting mind, that's what's actually strengthening the force which keeps us bound. And as we go around on this wheel of life and death and rebirth, around and around, sometimes we find ourselves in happy situations, sometimes we find ourselves in unhappy situations. And so on a more ultimate level, beginning to weaken the force of desire for sense pleasures actually is helping to free the mind from that craving which keeps us attached to this round of life and death. Well, practically speaking, what do we do? You know, do we have the cup of tea or do we drink the glass of water? I think at different times that we need to find a balance, we need to explore and play, you know, and experiment with our minds. Sometimes it's very helpful to go with a discipline of real restraint, really practicing that loving no in the mind. No, I won't do this. I mean, it's what the eight precepts are about, it's what so many of the rules of the monks and nuns are about. You know, it's a practice of renunciation, practicing the habit, practicing really the freedom of not being enslaved by each desire in the mind. And so that's a practice. On the other hand, we are living in the world and we're in contact with a lot of sense objects. And at other times, I think, it's fine to have the cup of tea or the piece of chocolate. You know, if, if we're engaged in something that is not harming, particularly to other people, not particularly harming to ourselves. 
And so it's just to find that balance, that middle way. Um, The time of a retreat, I think, is a very apropos time, appropriate time, to work with the kind of freedom that comes in the mind from learning to say no as different desires come up. It's a little bit easier because there aren't that many opportunities. There are some, but much less than when you leave. One of, the, one of the very interesting things to learn about desires is that it's the desire which is desiring. But mostly, they fool us. It's really ignorance which is fooling us into believing that there's someone who's having the desire and then we feel we need to gratify this someone who we are quite intimate with. You know, this sense of, yes, this is me, this is myself. I'm having this desire, so I have to, or should, or fulfill it. But that's all the trick. That actually what's desiring is the desire, which does not belong to anybody. And so just to have that kind of understanding, to bring that understanding in the meditation and in our lives is tremendously freeing. Because then we can make the choices with much more uh, balance. Like when we see those desires arising in the mind and know that it's the desire itself which is desiring, there's much less addiction. There's much less compulsion involved. There's a lot more spaciousness And then we can play. Is this appropriate to do at this time? Is it not appropriate to do? But in both of those situations, there's a real wisdom present. With the paramis being the uplifting qualities that protect us or hold us as the unseen support, And with people such as Jesus or Gandhi showing this and living lives of virtue and purity and love and compassion and wisdom and selflessness and non-harming to a very profound level, how is it that they and other saintly beings have died such violent deaths? The Dalai Lama, in a more contemporary example, is being exiled and with his country under siege. Is this latent karma? Are beings given or open to suffering to the level they can work with and handle? I don't understand. This is an addendum to the karma question. Especially when my life is... Especially when my life is looked at with all my worries and petty annoyances and irritations and judgments, and yet I have been quite blessed in most ways. I would expect Jesus and Gandhi's lives of purity would draw the positive karma from their past and for me the opposite. Can you clear up the apparent contradictions? Or am I in for a lot of suffering in the future? (laughs) 
Or should the Buddha have said, do good, avoid evil, train your mind, and hope for the best? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think the key point in this has to do not so much with the particular events that happen in a person's life, because the range and reach of karma is vast. It extends over countless, countless lifetimes. Uh, and different, different results can come at any time. The real, the important point in this is not so much what it is that's coming, but how the mind is relating to what's coming. And that is what's so extraordinary about these great beings. Whether it's Jesus or Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or many, many ordinary, unknown, unknown to us beings who have developed the paramis to a high extent, the gift that that gives to them is the ability to be with whatever changing circumstances arise with a free mind with a mind that does not become filled with anger or hatred or greed. And that's what's so amazing about... In the, you know, in the person of the Dalai Lama, and, and there are many, it's just amazing, given the amount of suffering you know, that he is intimately connected with and involved with, the response of his heart and mind is so incredibly loving and kind and compassionate. You know, it has not resulted in embitterment. And this is what the paramis are about. It's not that pain or suffering never comes anymore. It's that the ability of the heart to deal with it is, is greatly, greatly enhanced. And that's what we're practicing. You know, in every sitting, in every walking, as you sit and you come up against difficulties, as you practice opening to them, not reacting with greed or not reacting with aversion or annoyance or irritation, it's a training in the mind of these paramis. And that's what becomes the great strength for us in this life and in, in whatever lives are to come. And this is the strength that these beings reflect. Psychologists tell us there are five primary emotions. Mad, glad, sad, bad, and scared. <laughs> I notice at least four of these five are greed or hatred-based. And we can assume glad may be delusion or attachment based as well, judging from personal experience. This doesn't leave much, does it? My question is whether the entire human emotional structure is based on the three poisons, greed, hatred, delusion. What happens to it as the various stages of enlightenment are reached? Do emotions as we know them remain? Are you a compassionate Mr. Spock? Um, 
the range of emotions that we have, the range of mind states, uh, extends uh, well beyond you know, those three unwholesome roots or the, the five derivatives that the Western psychologists have, have identified. There's a whole range of unskillful, unwholesome mind states. And there's a whole list, I think, in the Abhidhamma, which describes all of these different emotions and mind states, there's a list of what are called the 25 beautiful states. And as we purify our minds of the forces of greed, of anger, of hatred, of fear, what remains is a very is a very beautiful mind. It's a mind that is more easily filled and expressive of metta, of compassion, of mudita, of joy in the happiness of others, of equanimity, of gladness, of rapture. So there are many, many positive emotions which actually have more opportunity to manifest in our lives as we weaken the forces of the unskillful roots. Um, and it's, it's quite clear, in, in, at least with the people I've met who I've felt are, have, who have done a lot of work, they're very alive. You know, but there's, there's a, both a great lightness of being and also a great depth of heart in them. Could you please say a few words about the difference between sati, mindfulness, and samadhi, concentration, between vipassana and samatha? Sati, mindfulness, and samadhi, or concentration, are two of these mental factors, two of these mental qualities. They have different functions in the mind. Samadhi, concentration, has the function of steadiness. It has the function of one-pointedness. And so it keeps the mind steady on the object. Samadhi is ethically neutral. We can be one-pointed, can be associated with greed. Some people are very one-pointed in their desires or in their anger. Or it can be associated with wholesome states of mind. So the function of concentration as a mental factor is just, it's a fixed quality, it's steady. The function of mindfulness as a mental factor, it's the factor which plunges into the object so that it sees it clearly. It goes, it's that factor which does not simply stay on the surface of things, which is the quality of attention, it's more superficial. Sati, or mindfulness, goes very deep into the object, and it's because of that depth in the object that we can really begin to see the nature of what's happening. Another metaphor which is used for mindfulness is coming face-to-face with the object. So it's as if the object is arising, and we come right up close to it, and we really see it very clearly. 
the two working together are very powerful. When the concentration and mindfulness together, then it gives a real power to the practice. The difference between samatha and vipassana as meditations, samatha is is a concentration practice where we're giving the mind a single object and just staying on it. It could be the breath, it could be a mantra, it could be a light, it could be a visualization, it could be a sound. And we just fix the mind. And this leads to the jhana states, the absorptions. And what's characteristic, there, there are different of these jhanas, but what's characteristic of all of them is a certain fixedness of the mind. It's like the mind drops into a... It's like the mind is held there on the object. In Vipassana, the kind of samadhi that's used, and I think you know, other, other of the teachers have talked about this, there is a kind of samadhi that's used in Vipassana, but it's called momentary samadhi. Pali is kanika samadhi which is a one-pointedness, but not on a fixed object, but one-pointedness on changing objects. And so for each arising experience, the mind is one-pointed. But the, in Vipassana, the idea is not to stay fixed on that. The next arising object, one-pointed. Next arising object, one-pointed. And so there's a kind of fluidity to this momentary samadhi that is not there, in the, in the fixed object concentration. The main difference in experience between Vipassana and Samatha practice is that in Samatha, we are not seeing clearly the three characteristics because the mind has dropped into this kind of fixed state. It's not seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena. And it's for that reason that samatha by itself does not lead to wisdom. In vipassana, with the use of momentary concentration, it's precisely for the purpose of seeing impermanence, of seeing the unsatisfying quality, of seeing anatta, of selflessness. And so they really have very different feelings and they have very different purposes. If people practice samatha, and metta is, metta can be done as a concentration practice, or many, compassion, different colored discs, or many ways of doing it. As the mind gets powerful in this samatha, and it's then applied to vipassana, then the vipassana goes very easily, because the power of the concentration suppresses the hindrances. We don't operate much. The the hindrances don't operate much when the concentration is that strong. And so it provides um, provides a, a help in a way. Upandita has said that for some people... doing vipassana without the strong samatha practice, without the level of jhana practice, that it goes faster. 
Because even though the samatha is a help, and it's, it's like, he uses a lot of warrior images. So you have to kind of get into his, into his metaphor. He says having samatha in jhana practice is like fighting with a shield. You know, and so every time there's a blow, you know, it's the shield which deflects it. And so you can kind of move forward under the protection of the shield. And doing Vipassana is like being in this battle without the shield, which you probably have realized. <laughs> but that somehow, you know, if there's enough, whatever it takes, enough courage and perseverance and willingness, that somehow the energy generated by just being in there, you know, without any kind of protection, <laughs> that one can actually proceed quite fast. That's what he has said. (laughs) For weeks now I have been hearing music in my head. It started off as a kind of ancient tribal chanting and then moved on to the repetition of the opening bars of the theme song to... Get Smart. (laughs) Since then, it's been a mixture of the greatest hits of the New Age and the pleasing sound of a car alarm going off. Help. What should I do? I feel like I'm back in New York City. Yes. (laughs) Hearing songs and sounds of all kinds is not uncommon. when we realize that in some way we need to clear out everything we've put in, it's some recommendation for uh, simplifying our lives. Um, I used to sit and have replays of endless movies and TV shows the worst ones. No, it, was, it wasn't even the best movies that came back. And it's just amazing to see how much is in there. What's really important is keeping a very delicate balance of mind, which is neither, which is neither getting into enjoyment of it, if it's pleasant, or aversion to it, if it's, if it's unpleasant, because in both ways, it's feeding it. I mean, there was one time when there was this one irritating song which kept coming back in my mind. And as as soon as I heard the first bars of the song again, there would be this inward flinch. You know, no, not again. Because it always played through. You know, I couldn't kind of stop it halfway. Until I learned, it was really just having to learn. It came up just to let it come and go, not not have any reaction in the mind. And the less reaction in the mind there is, the easier it became not to get involved, and it actually uh, diminished quite a bit. But the tendency of the mind is either to get into it because we're enjoying it, or to resist it because we don't like it. Um, And so it's just finding that very delicate middle place. 
It's, it's analogous to something Suzuki Roshi said about working with thoughts. He said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Simply let them come and go. So it's that same sense. Repeat submission. Did you realize you never answer any of my questions? (laughs) I don't submit many. I can't give a convincing answer to people who ask why Buddhists are not vegetarians, because I haven't heard one. Except in areas where one cannot get adequate nutrition without meat, how justify eating animal flesh in view of law of supply and demand, destruction of ecology for grazing land, making the earth uninhabitable, amount of grain it takes to produce protein so high on the protein chain in view of world hunger? The reason I haven't answered that question before is that I don't know the answer. (laughs) It's an ongoing dilemma, and the question comes up a lot, you know, with different people at different times. The best I can do is very briefly share both sides of the dilemma that I say. In terms of the classical Buddhist teaching, there is a very there is a very specific teaching about the precept of killing and what conditions are necessary for that precept to actually be broken. And it involves the conditions necessary to actually be breaking the precept about killing has to do with there being a living animal, with there having the intention in the mind to kill it, with the actual act of killing it, with the animal actually dying from your act. And so with respect to the precept of killing, I don't think that the eating of meat breaks the precept, which is why in many Buddhist countries uh, people eat meat and monks eat meat. So that's one side. The other side is that all of that was taught in the context of a particular society and culture when that's how things happened. Now we are very removed from the act, extremely removed. In my own experience, I see a very clear difference between the mind state of killing something, which I described to you in my Peace Corps chicken story, and the mind state of eating meat. Motive is completely different, intention is completely different, mind state is completely different. And so I understand very clearly that it's not the same thing. On the other hand, there is clearly a connection. You know, that there is a law of supply and demand. There are all these ecological concerns and environment concerns. 
And so the best I've come up with is just suggesting everybody give some thought to it. Not during these three months. (laughs) And we each find that place in ourselves of action which seems appropriate. There is no way to live on this earth without harming other beings. And so if that is the ultimate reference point for the choice of our actions, it's time to pack it up. Because it's impossible. Every time we walk on the ground, every time we breathe the air, the way everybody has gotten here, and the use of the resources, you know, and flying in the planes, and it, just the complexity of our society is such that there are many, many things we do that down the line are causing some harm. And so I think that the two things we need to look at in addressing these issues, one is to look very clearly at the specific intention and motivation in our minds, that this is a key point. And two, understanding that there is a line that has to be drawn someplace, and we're going to each draw it in slightly different places. Do we wear leather shoes? And the list, is, there's no end you know, to the questions that arise. And so I don't think there's an easy answer. And it's just for each one of us to really see what feels appropriate. There seem to be many people out there in the world who are actively engaged in worldly pursuits, whether creative, helping others, or just working and raising a family who seem happy. Many of them are highly moral and generous people, yet many of them have never heard the Dhamma as expressed by the Buddha, or they have no interest in it. How do you explain this? Are they practicing the Dhamma without knowing it? Or have they just not yet come to know the truth of suffering? Can one achieve enlightenment solely through trying to lead a moral life? How about through decreasing the kalesis via therapy, provided one was diligent. This is important to me because I don't think I'll be able to do a long retreat again. If concentration doesn't get rid of the defilements, and liberating insights may never come in this lifetime, explain, explain please how us ordinary yogis become free of the defilements. think that many people in many of the spiritual traditions and outside any particular spiritual tradition understand the value of leading generous and moral lives. And I think that that is a widespread human value. And as people live lives in that way, they experience both the present, the present fruits of it and also the karmic fruits. 
It does not lead particularly to liberation, although it can bring about a certain kind of happiness, because it is not getting at that root defilement which keeps us bound to this wheel. And that is the belief, this core belief, central in our consciousness, this belief in the sense of self. Even as people are practicing generosity and morality and loving-kindness, until there is insight into the essential emptiness of phenomena, the essential selflessness of phenomena, these actions, and they're wholesome actions, and they bring happy, fruitful results, but they're done with that core belief of someone doing them. And so we then stay on this round of rebirth. It takes a very, a very careful and profound looking and observation. Profound wisdom into the nature of this mind and body to begin to understand the selflessness of it all, the emptiness of it all. And so there are different, there are different levels of Dhamma understanding. The key to liberating insight does not have to do with any special circumstances. I don't know whether Sharon had mentioned to you this uh, one woman in India, not Deepama, it's another woman teacher in Calcutta, who also, like Deepama, was married when she was 12 or 14. Very soon, she had two children. She didn't want to get married. She was a very bright woman and really had... She wanted to continue her schooling and was very drawn to meditation. Um, But just because of the culture and the family, she was basically forced into this marriage. It was really difficult. It was very hard. But she was so committed, and she just had, she had these very strong paramis. She made it her practice in her life, and it was, it was kind of an ordinary Indian housewife sort of life. She made it her priority, her commitment, to really practice being mindful. You know, we talk about it a lot, and it's really what we're all doing here, she did it in a context very different than a retreat. She did it in her ordinary daily life. Because the commitment was so strong, her practice got very, very deep. And at certain points, she reached uh, some of the higher stages of enlightenment. So it's not to create a model, a fragmented model in the mind that wisdom can only come in special circumstances. Wisdom comes from a very acute attention, from a very acute mindfulness. The retreat is a time to train oneself in that. It's it's this most precious gift. 
But all of life is a time to train oneself in it. And I think it's crucial not to create this division in the mind between retreat being Dhamma practice and the rest of our life not being Dhamma practice. Because that is tremendously disempowering and it's not what the Dhamma is about. There is no knowing. You know, we create, we just, we, we cultivate this garden of the mind. We cultivate all the seeds of wholesome factors, of concentration, of mindfulness, of energy, of interest, of equanimity. We're just watering this garden. It's going to bear fruit in its own time, and we don't know when. Now, it might be here, it might be when you leave, it might be later on in your life. But to really see that, that our whole life is the field of practice, Genuinely, this is not this is not just a nice thing to say, but it takes a very strong commitment, because the diversions in the world are many, and so it really takes a practice of staying very attentive, staying very present. You know, you can look at this time here. You could sort of look at it as mindfulness boot camp. <laughs> you know, and kind of after three months, you all come out seasoned, <laughs> seasoned mindfulness warriors. It's a training. It's, just, it's the most wonderful thing to just to have this opportunity where you have nothing else to do all day long. Nobody's bugging you about anything. People aren't even talking to you. All you have to do, and, and this is wonderful, <laughs> just you practice being mindful. Yeah, and the mind goes off, which you will, you just come back and you just practice it some more. I mean, it's, it's the most it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I'm getting all excited. <laughs> How does one obtain relief from the judging mind? Is the development of metta the best technique? At what stage of enlightenment does it fall away? Are Westerners more prone to this? If so, why? The judging mind is a lot like... uh, an unpleasant song... You know, it's, it's just like this tape in the mind that comes up a lot. It's not so much, I mean, one could work with metta as a way of just changing channels, but more liberating is just seeing how empty that judging thought is. It's just a thought. You know, and if you neither believe it nor condemn it, it's no problem. You're sitting or you're walking, you're moving about, the judging thought comes. If you can just catch it, oh, judging, it's gone. One of the techniques which I've suggested to a few people, which helps get into a good relationship with judging or comparing, is just to start counting them. 
judging one, judging two, judging three thousand. What happens is exactly what just happened. At a certain point, the mind starts smiling. Once you start smiling at the judgments, they are not a problem. You just see it's just this conditioned tape. It has no power. It is no difficult. It's not a difficulty if we don't, if we don't give it any power. Let it come and go. The problem is that we either, we either get identified with it and believe the judgments, or we condemn them. We think they shouldn't be happening. We condemn ourselves for having them. Both ways we're giving it energy. We're feeding it. And so it's, it's really very simple. Judging, judging, judging. Nothing. And that's, that's, this, is, this is what's so amazing about learning about the mind and the nature of thought. That thoughts in themselves have no weight. They have no power at all. The only power is the power we give them. And how do we learn this? We learn it by watching over and over and over again until sometime when you're having a lot of thoughts, you know, maybe next week or so when that happens again. <laughs> so instead of fighting with it, instead of kind of desperately trying to hold on to the breath, just sometime when the mind is you know, having all these thoughts, just sit back. And take the opportunity to learn about thoughts. Not the content. But just sit back and watch. Watch what this phenomenon is. (laughs) Thoughts Thoughts are... They can be wonderful. (laughs) They're so mysterious. They're just so mysterious. What are they? What is this phenomenon that plagues us? When we look carefully, when you're just sitting back and relaxed with it, we see, and we, we each see for ourselves. There's no shortage of, of times to practice. You know, we just we sit back and we see that they're just these wisps. We don't have to buy into them. We don't have to condemn them. It's just, just as Suzuki Roshi said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and go. It's exactly that way with judging or comparing To your knowledge, is there anything in the teachings that demonstrates a negative attitude towards homosexual love? I'm increasingly drawn towards these teachings with their basis of compassion, acceptance, and the end of suffering, yet hold myself back in case I find them rejecting of my deepest adult interpersonal loving, as are many religious paths. I would find it encouraging even to hear of the absence of negative attitudes, To hope for positive, enlightened views is probably unrealistic. In this group of 100 people, even conservative estimates would reckon 10 of us are primarily lesbian or gay, while many others have family or friends who are. Your comments, please. I have never come across anything in the Theravada texts about homosexuality being um, sexual misconduct or unskillful. 
there is a lot about sexual misconduct. It seems to fall into two other domains, rather uh, than in this area of sexual preference. The two other domains that are talked about a lot, one is the kinds of restraint that are appropriate for different levels of precepts. And so what's appropriate in terms of a layperson is not appropriate for somebody on eight precepts or for somebody as a nun or a monk. When one has taken the higher precepts, then uh, actually any kind of sexual activity is considered sexual misconduct. And so there's the strong emphasis on renunciation of those actions. For lay people who are on five precepts in the world, not, not on retreat where we take the, the precept of celibacy, but just as lay people in the world, as far as I know from my reading in the texts, the main the main issue of sexual misconduct has to do with basically with adultery with be, or with being involved sexually with people in, in the language of the suttas under the guardianship of somebody else. Um, and I think it's reasonably obvious you know, that either if we get involved with somebody who's committed, in a committed relationship with somebody else, or, you know, with minors, people still under the guardianship of their parents or family, it's clearly not, not a wholesome act. And there's a lot of emphasis on taking care with that. You know, the recognition that the power of passion, the power of desire is very strong. You know, and sometimes when it's strong in the mind, our judgment gets clouded. That's why a commitment to the basic precepts, it's just a reminder. It's something to come back to. You know, when, when desire is overwhelming the mind, there's, there's some anchor for us, for our judgment of what's skillful and what's unskillful. Um, in typically... sort of Theravada scholastic fashion, all the nuances of uh, sexual misconduct, uh, particularly for uh, the monks and nuns, has gone into in excruciating detail. (laughs) The British, the English translators of the turn of the century uh, didn't translate these parts because they found it inappropriate <laughs> for Western eyes or ears, sort of the level of explicity. Uh, so if you want to find out the details, you're going to have to learn Pali. <laughs> but I, I hope that gives a, a general sense of sort of what is considered, what is, what is the important 
ethical considerations. What ways did the Buddha teach Vipassana? Was noting one of them. I've been asking this question for two, three month courses. Is this a secret? (laughs) The Buddha taught a way to liberation, a way to awakening. And he taught, it was very, very explicit, very direct. Within this, there are many techniques. I'd just like to read to you kind of the, it's just the opening, really the opening paragraph. It's of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is, it is the core teaching, the central teaching that the Buddha gave about awakening the mind. There is this one way, bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Herein a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body as the body, ardently, clearly comprehending and mindful, removing covetousness and grief in the world, dwelling, contemplating the feelings as feelings, ardently, clearly comprehending and mindful, removing covetousness and grief in the world, dwells, contemplating consciousness as consciousness, ardently, clearly comprehending and mindful, removing covetousness and grief in the world, and dwells contemplating the Dhamma as the Dhamma, ardently, clearly comprehending, and mindful, removing covetousness and grief in the world. And it's... What's so amazing about the teaching, it's just so clear that there is this way for the overcoming of suffering, for the overcoming of pain, for the overcoming of grief, for the purification of beings. Okay, so within these four foundations of mindfulness, which is what we're practicing, then the whole sutta goes on to describe many different techniques, just in terms of mindfulness of the body, contemplating the body as the body, there's mindfulness of the breathing, there's the postures of the body, there's the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body, That's particularly for people consumed with lust and delight in it. There's the reflection on the material elements, the four great elements. There's the nine cemetery contemplations. And it just goes on and on. There are all these ways that the Buddha outlined four different temperaments of how to contemplate the body as the body. The same thing with feelings, the same thing with consciousness. And so within this scope of Satipatthana, of these four foundations, there are many, many techniques of practice. The noting is one of the techniques, this mental labeling, because it's a way of being ardent, it's a way of clearly comprehending, of being mindful, 
of overcoming covetousness and grief with respect to the object. Because the power of the labeling is, you know, we've talked about so often, but it just, it frames each moment's experience and drops the mind right into that correct relationship so that we're not, we're not reaching trying to hold on to it if it's pleasant. We're not condemning it or have a version if it's unpleasant. There's just that clear comprehension. Yes, it's this. It's this. It's this. It's this. It's this. And we just note, note, note. And so not only do we begin to see what it is that's arising in each moment, we also get a clearer and clearer sense that it's all changing. You know, that whatever we note, it's just coming and it lasts for some time and then it goes. And it's that insight, it's that clear seeing into impermanence which actually deconditions attachment. So, uh, it's also to, to know that there are many ways of practice. There are many techniques. Well, it's 8.30. Let's read one last question. How does our practice benefit all beings? I can see this only in a limited fashion. I think there are different ways to reflect on this and appreciate this. One is that it's very clear the effect that each person, that each being has on everyone we're in touch with. There's a clear, a clear relationship, a clear conditioning. How do we feel when we're around very loving people? How are we when we're around very angry people, around very generous people? You know, there's just, there's an immediate transmission of either happiness, of peace, or of suffering. People in positions of greater power affect huge numbers of people by their mind states. I mean, it's... We know the history of the world. It's, it's amazing how much harm an untrained mind can do, an unexamined mind. Here in Barry because of what happened in Bodh Gaya over 2,000 years ago. It was an amazing chain. You know, if, we were to, if we were to trace the chain, there's a... Uh, example, which I've mentioned not, not during this course yet, but in some of the other talks. It's an example that comes from the study of the science of chaos, where it's just science studying physical events um, in which the physical laws governing them are not very apparent. 
You know, and so there seems to be a lot of mystery about what looks like random events. I basically got through the introduction of the book because it got, it got too technical for me. But there was, there was one example which, which he used, the author used, and it, it just struck me as being so appropriate to the practice He was illustrating a principle which he called sensitive dependence, I think this is right, (laughs) sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And he used the example of something called the butterfly effect, which was how a butterfly flapping its wings in China could set in motion the chain of events, the chain of conditions, which results in a storm you know, in Boston. And the theory of it is that in a system, when you take any system, very little input can have huge consequences in the output. And it just, it rang so true to me in terms of the practice. You know, we make very little input that is just mindfulness in the moment and mindfulness in the moment and mindfulness in the moment. That's like the butterfly flapping its wings. Think of each breath as just another another little flap. And doing that creates a storm system, as you've experienced. And it's the same thing as we practice. It's like we're this, we're this stone being dropped into, a, into an ocean, you know, and it just it ripples and it ripples and it ripples. And what we do touches somebody else, and that person touches somebody else. So there are enormous consequences. Much more than we can say. And so it's in, it's in both of those senses, you know, just the immediate, immediate effect of the relative purity of our minds on the people around us that we come into contact with, and the very vast, far-reaching implications I think it's, it's really inspiring just to remember and to recollect as we're going through our practice, as, as I've mentioned before, that it is for the liberation of our own minds, but not only for ourselves. That we're really practicing you know, for the benefit of all beings. And it is of benefit. It has very, it has very important benefits. Okay, there were just a couple of announcements. One is uh, from the kitchen. Uh, If you leave, if you're scheduled to leave before the end of the retreat, 
please tell the kitchen so that they can find a substitute uh, for your yogi job. Because if you leave and you don't give them, uh, you know, advance notice, then the job situation gets difficult. So please let them know. And it's, it's mostly Ana Rosa, if you can remember. So you could leave a note for her. Otherwise, just for the kitchen in general. Uh, and one other reminder is it's got some notes about uh, just yogi interaction, either through notes or through touching or through hugging. Or, uh, there are lots of different <laughs> treasure the space of silence and, and respect the space of silence and solitude you know, for, for each person. There's something wonderful about this situation. It, it's like there's the combination of um, the power of group support of a hundred people practicing, and yet the silence and solitude can give you the space of being, you know, in a cave in the Himalayas. And there really can be the, the blessings of both if the silence and aloneness is respected. Particularly now, people are so sensitive. You know, and so just be watchful and be, mm, take care, take care with that. Thank you. Why don't we just sit for about two minutes, flap the butterfly wings. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.